Good Saturday morning. Welcome to a very special edition of Exploring Unexplained Phenomena here on KZUM. I am Ryan Evans, joined in the studio by Jim Shorney. Good morning, Jim. Good morning. And good morning, Colleen. Good morning. And we are going live to uh, Laughlin, Nevada this morning, where Scott Colborn will be hosting the program from the Starworks USA UFO Symposium. Good morning, Scott. Hey, good morning, gang. How are you in Lincoln, Nebraska, and worldwide? We're doing great here. How are things in Laughlin? It's a beautiful day. I watched the sunrise uh, right across the Colorado River. Is uh, I think the town is Bullhead, Arizona. You can almost, uh, if you are really good, throwing from center field to home plate, you can almost get a ball across the river. But it's very scenic here. Um, Laughlin is in the southern part of Nevada. And uh, I had uh, a pretty uneventful trip out here, a little bit of turbulence outside of Denver, flying from Denver to Las Vegas. Uh, most of us were buckled in. Nobody got thrown around too much. And uh, then just a nice uh, drive about an hour and a half down from Las Vegas to Laughlin. And the accommodations are first rate. And we had already just a, a whale of a conference yesterday. And and no UFO sightings from the airplane shadowing you and keeping an eye on you? Um, so far, no. But you know what? Uh, there is a group here that showed a, a documentary film called Making Contact, uh -huh. Be Inspired. And they're taking people out tonight on a, on a, a skywatch. And they've got night vision cameras and infrared stuff. So it should be pretty interesting. Well, that's awesome. I hope you guys see something. <laughs> So how's everybody in the studio? I'm good. Uh, it, it's been a good week for me, and uh, it's good to see Colleen back in the saddle this morning. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, was, I actually was um, driving through Nevada, uh, I think it was last week, coming back here to Lincoln. You know, we went through um, Reno. <laughs> we went through Reno to get to San Francisco. So, mm -hmm. And we also drove to Salt, Salt Lake City and. uh several towns in Wyoming on the way, so. Well, Colleen, it's good to have you back. Um, and Jim, what have you been doing this week? Oh, just pretty much the same old stuff, working, sleeping, uh, playing on the on the two-way radio, tinkering on the workbench, you know, just just my regular life. Are we ready for pet talk? Uh, we are. And we do have Charlene on the line. Good morning, Charlene. Good morning. Hey, Charlene. Good morning from Laughlin, Nevada. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are things out there? Doing fantastic. Hey, tell us about um, Pet Pictures with Santa. So they are coming up soon. It's a great idea to get some uh, photos of your pet with Santa. It's going to be November 9th and 13th from 5 to 8 at Camp Bow Wow. And you can learn more inform uh, information on our website at capitalhumanesociety.org. Um, it's just a really fun way to support the Humane Society and get great pictures of Santa and your pet. <laughs> oh, boy. It sounds like a lot of fun. That's November 9th and 13th. Uh, informations at uh, capitalhumanesociety.org. And uh, then coming up is a annual holiday run. That's right. That's another great and fun fundraiser for us. 
That's going to be Sunday, December 2nd at 10 a.m., and you can go to our website to register to be part of the activity. A picture of a gal there with a Santa hat on uh, walking or jogging with her dog looks like a lot of fun. It is. Okay, this is Charlene with Pet Talk. You're listening to Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. We've got a great crew this morning. We've got in the studio in Lincoln, Ryan Evans, our program director at KZUM. We've got Mr. Jim Shorney, and we've got Colleen Newholly back from uh, her travels. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it's great to be with you. I'm Scott Colborn. And Charlene, let's go ahead and talk about some cats for adoption. Okay, so we've got lots of great cats. So if you're looking for a feline companion, we hope you'll come to visit us at our Pylock Pet Adoption Center. We'll start today by talking with Brady or talking about Brady. He is a one-year-old neutered male, domestic short hair. He ha is polydactyl, so oh. he has the extra toes on every paw. <laughs> isn't it adorable? You've got to check out his picture and then come visit him in person. In addition to just having, you know, cute feet, he is a very sweet guy with a great personality. That's a great picture. You could really see it's, those big feet. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and they're often kneading and kneading. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's really Brady cool. the Bigfoot, right. Yeah, <laughs> the Bigfoot cat. <laughs> okay, Brady is joined by? Next up is Mink. And Minx is a beautiful cat with big, bright eyes. She's about six years old, a spade female. She's a Manx, which means she just has a little stubby tail. Um, she is front declawed, so needs to be kept safe as an indoor-only companion. And she's just looking for a wonderful family that's going to take excellent care of her. Minx the Manx. <laughs> uh-huh. That's, that's right. That's a fun name. Oh, look, look at that picture, too. She's just staring into the camera like, what is that? Can I eat it? What does it taste like? <laughs> Beautiful kitty. Okay, I've got a slow-loading window. There she is. There she is. Yeah. yeah, look at that. <laughs> She's front to clawed, and she'd love to meet you. Boy, does she have curiosity. Mm -hmm. Okay, Minx the Manx is looking for a great home. Brady... Minx, the Manx, or? Sugar, and Sugar's a beautiful cat, a domestic short hair. She's also got a very sweet personality, and she's also chatty, so she wants to tell you all about her day. So if you enjoy intelligent conversation, you're going to want to ask about Sugar. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, there's the song, No Sugar Tonight in My Coffee. <laughs> uh, what a fun yeah. little kitty. Brady, Minx, and Sugar, uh, two cats are better than one. Colborn family years ago adopted two cats, and they were mm -hmm. so fun. So to see one or two cats or more, uh, go out and see the folks at the Capital Humane Society today and tomorrow. Charlene, what are the hours open? We are open at our Pylock Pet Adoption Center today and tomorrow from 11 to 530. Okay, who let the dogs out, by the way? Who let the dogs out? Time for dogs for adoption. We had wonderful volunteers in this morning that did let the dogs out, so they got their exercise and little breaks, um, and now they're going to be ready to meet visitors that come in and potentially adopt them. We'll start with Dobie, and Dobie is a very handsome boxer pit bull mix. 
four years old, a neutered male, a strong, big guy, very smart, loves to get out and explore, but he's also one that enjoys attention. Uh, so he's looking for a family that can provide him with plenty of exercise and lots of love. Look at those bat ears on that dog. Mm-hmm. Looks like he's ready to fly. What an interesting-looking fellow. <laughs> so, yeah, Dobby or Dobby the Elf there from the Harry Potter series. Uh-huh. So great-looking dog. Great-looking um, dog. Looks like he's got lots of curiosity, intelligence. He could be that right dog for you. And Dobby is joined by... Rudy. And Rudy also is quite smart. She's a sage female, a lab greyhound mix, about a year old. Uh, looking for someone who has plenty of time to play and provide her with walks and training. Uh, she's a nice dog, hoping to be your new adorable sidekick. A lab greyhound. That's kind of an unusual mix. <laughs> Beautiful looking dog. And what a dog. cool name for a dog, Rudy. Yeah. Yeah. She's, Just a cool name. She's got her head cocked like she's really interested in what's going on and ready to engage. Uh, black and white. And I can I can see a hint of the greyhound body in the picture. I agree, definitely. And in her walk too, she's sitting in the photo there. But when she walks, you can also see it in her body. Mm-hmm. She's got that greyhound going. Yeah. Uh, pictures are up for these dogs, uh, Doby and Rudy at CapitalHumaneSociety.org. Our third dog is. We'll talk about Trigger. And Trigger is a one-year-old lab mix. He's black and has a big old grin on his face there in the photo. Uh, He's very bright and bouncy, loves to have fun, (laughs) loves to learn new things. So he'll be very motivated by treats and uh, can be a very uh, uh, enjoyable friend. Um, So Trigger is hoping that somebody will come in and ask about him today. Yeah, nice-looking lab. And if you're kind of a lone ranger, this could be your constant companion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, Jim, you caught that too, didn't you? Yes, I did. Okay, Dobie, Rudy, and Trigger are three great dogs. Brady, Minx the Manx, and Sugar, three great cats. See pictures at capitalhumanesociety.org, folks, or go out and see them in person today and tomorrow. And Charlene, remind us again what those hours are. Our Pylock Pet Adoption Center is open on Saturday and Sunday from 11 to 530. Okay, we don't see you then next week, so we'll talk to you in two weeks, right? That sounds great. Thank you. Okay, sounds great. Thanks for all you do. Have a great time in Nevada. Oh, thank you. I am so far. Good. Uh, The Capital Humane Society with Charlene, making the first place you go when you want to adopt a dog or cat. I'm Scott Colborn with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. And ladies and gentle people, last Saturday... We just turned over the 34-year marker. So we are celebrating this month 34 years of broadcast. And thank you so much out there for the support that you give us through the radio station KZUM and for listening online worldwide at KZUM.org. And, Scott, I would just like to say congratulations on that. That is an incredible accomplishment to hold mm-hmm. the the world's longest running paranormal talk program right here in Lincoln, Nebraska and it it means a lot so thank you for everything over 3 plus decades, 3 and a half decades of this program. It's been fun out here Ryan and and gang to 
to tell people about the radio show and about KZUM. And uh, I say we've been on the air for 34 years, and they kind of do a double take. They look at me like, <laughs> "Wow, is he is he telling the truth? What is this? What?" <laughs> they say, "Did you start when you were 10?" <laughs> I just ask people. I just you know, what were you doing 34 years ago? And then everybody kind of stops and thinks about, "Hmm, let's see, what was I doing then?" And uh, we credit uh, that great idea to, in part, Ray Boucher. Um, Ray and I had talked about doing something like this. Uh, nobody else was doing anything like this program, and we thought it was a, a way to, to get together and share uh, research to have other people on that were doing unexplained phenomena research, authors, and we uh, we started the program, and it's just been a, a wonderful ride. We were at 10th and Q, and uh, then we went up to the terminal building, from the basement to the top of the terminal building. And now we've got these brand new facilities over there at 48th and Calvert. And, uh, you know, there were a lot of reasons why we loved, we all loved the terminal building, but I think having moved to South 48th and Calvert, I don't think there's a single one of us that would go back. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree. There are many times when I miss being downtown and, and being in a historical building, but you can't beat the facilities we've been able to obtain mm-hmm. here thanks to the support over four decades for this radio station. I agree as well. I remember the old studio and the fun we had there, but this is sure a nice place. Yeah, Ryan, didn't we officially celebrate 40 years for KZUM back in February? Yep, that's right. So we'll be on turning the calendar to 41 years of the station here in just uh, four months or so. And that's pretty awesome, too. <laughs> uh-huh. This is Scott Colborn, and is Preston Denon up next? Do we, do we have his phone number? Because I, di- I didn't receive it. <laughs> no one gave it uh, to me. Yep, we've got his phone number, so... We'll just uh, need a moment, Scott, to get Preston on the line. Sure. But Colleen will well, I'm go, go and give him a call and, right now. I'm tell people a little bit about the, the trip out here. You know, I, uh, I flew out here on Thursday. My daughter gave me a ride to the airport. And uh, the, the trip from Lincoln to Denver uh, was, was fine. The only complaint I've got about the airline seats is that I think the seats themselves are shrinking. I think we got to have some serious science done on this. That I don't know how they're doing this, but uh, it may be because they're they're atrophying or drying out or something. I don't think that I'm getting so much larger in the uh, the fanny area or the hips, but the seats are uh, are pretty small. Yeah, you know, I've noticed but, that too over the years. I tell you what, you know how synchronicity works i get on uh, the plane in lincoln and i walk down to my assigned seat and it's occupied by a, a private commercial pilot you can tell because they've got the regalia on the uniforms and he pointed across the aisle and said would you mind trading seats i'm sitting next to my buddy uh. and so there were three pilots uh that were kind of all there for this private commercial airline that were uh, hopping out from Lincoln to Denver on United. So I sat on the aisle next to one of these private pilots, a uh, commercial guy, and uh, we started talking, and all of a sudden we started talking about UFOs. 
And so he had a, a, a great point. You know, he said that personally he's never seen anything yet that he can't explain, but he said that when one considers the whole universe and that how infinitesimally small the Earth is, that if you've got carbon and water, you've got a chance for life. Mm-hmm. And looking out there, just even with a naked eye, let alone with our telescopes and our, our instruments, that we know that there are billions of planets out there. He said it's just, uh, it's human uh, humanity trying to limit God's creation when we say that we're the only intelligent life in the universe. Absolutely. And so we had a really interesting discussion I pointed him towards some uh, information I thought as a pilot that he might like and uh, really enjoyed that part of the flight. Very good. Yeah, that's, I have to agree. The numbers are just so heavily in favor of there being life out there somewhere. How can there not be? Yeah. And so we, a uh, brief uh, changeover, I think I ate at a place called City Walk. Um, I'm on kind of a Chinese food kick this weekend, I guess, but food was good, uh, very, very hot, fresh. And then I boarded the flight from uh, Denver to Las Vegas. And that, besides the turbulence right outside of Denver, that was a uneventful flight. Uh, Of course, that's the kind of flight you want. And we got into Las Vegas. This is probably the latest that I've ever flown into Las Vegas because when I picked up my friend uh, Serena Wright Taylor and we drove down from Las Vegas down to Laughlin, as we pulled into Laughlin finally, it was at dusk. And so I got to see the countryside with all the rocks and formations change and go into that kind of twilight period. And it was really spectacular. Uh, As you might guess out here, folks, The southern part here of Nevada, there are a lot of rocks. And so I've been told by friends uh, that probably should know that I've got rocks in my head. Well, this might be a a great place for me because there are rocks all around us. (laughs) I'm now looking out from the 11th floor. My birthday is in November. So I'm looking out from the 11th floor here, looking across the Colorado River. And it's just a beautiful morning here in Laughlin, Nevada. And Scott, we now have Preston Dennett on the line. So Preston, good morning to you. Good morning. How are you? We're doing well here. And Scott is joining us from Laughlin, Nevada at the Starworks USA conference. Preston, I'm going to have to try to kidnap you somehow and get you out here one of these years. (laughs) I tell you. Definitely. I, I think you'd really enjoy it here. I know I would. Yeah, I've definitely got to get out there. There's a bunch of people that drive over from Southern California, and the drive is uh, about four hours, four and a half hours. Uh, the kind of an annual event, the artist Kid Rock is performing here next weekend. And if you don't already have a room booked in Laughlin, don't even try because there's a huge following from California that drives over for that Kid Rock concert, and they basically take up every single uh, room 
that they can find in Laughlin, Nevada. Wow. <laughs> I think the, the band Fish was playing in Las Vegas over the weekend, too, that I was on a uh, plane from Denver to Las Vegas, and a lot of people on the plane were talking about this upcoming concert uh, and uh, kind of getting uh, mentally ready for that. So, Preston, we, we always enjoy talking with you, uh, the seen and the unseen. And tell us what's crossed your desk in the last 30 days. Hey, there's always something, I tell you. Um, well, there's one interesting guy I've been interviewing. His name is Lincoln. He's from Australia, a town called Cairns, Australia, actually. And uh, he's been telling me about this very interesting encounter he had while he was in a hotel room. And I, I love these kinds of encounters because they show that you can have an encounter basically anywhere. I interviewed one lady years ago. She had an encounter in the Marriott Hotel in Woodland Hills, a very densely populated area. So, yeah, these things can happen anywhere. And this guy, he was asleep when somehow he sensed a light outside the hotel, outside his window. Now, he's asleep, mind you, and so this is confusing him. When suddenly he wakes up for real, and at the foot of his bed is a seven-foot-tall gray being yikes and he, he described it as you know a typical gray uh hairless large dark eyes couldn't really make out a whole lot of fa facial features because this thing was holding something in its hand like a bright glowing ball of light it was just holding it towards <laughs> this guy lincoln as if like trying to give it to him or something now he couldn't move lincoln was totally paralyzed uh all he could do is sit there and look at the or lay there and look at this thing and he contacted me because he's like could this possibly be a dream or something but uh i'm like well you said you were awake right he's like well yeah but i was asleep at first so he was a little confused about it uh and it just stood there for gosh maybe a minute or so holding this thing and then he it disappeared and Lincoln wakes up completely freaked out, trying to figure out what just happened. So I asked him a bunch of questions, and the first thing I always ask people when they tell me something like this is, do you have a history of encounters? He's like, well, gosh, yeah, I actually do. He and his sister had a very close upsighting of a UFO as kids. This thing came right over their house, just hovering right above it, uh, they both thought they had just been roller skating and uh, saw this thing hovering right over the house. And he says it was just a big, giant ball of light, uh, kind of a soft light. And uh, it was weird, he said, because it felt like it was watching them and it knew that it was being watched. That's kind of another thing I look for. And he says as soon as they saw, they saw it, this thing took off just as though it was there long enough to be noticed. Once it was noticed, off it went. So he's had a lot of dreams and UFO dreams. He's had a number of dreams where there's hundreds of UFOs out there in the sky and he's hiding from them. So that's another red flag I look for. Uh, but basically it just seems your typical encounter with a gray type ET. 
and uh, Preston was a while. The, the most recent was the most recent encounter where he was uh, <clears throat> in a uh, hotel room. Was that in Australia? Yes. Yeah, that was in Australia. And but what I found fascinating is, you know, we pretty much ended the interview and uh, didn't talk for a while, and he he wrote me back. He's like, oh, I forgot something. My mic reminded me that there was this instance where I was followed home by a ball of light, and I completely forgot. And he says, I don't know how I could have forgotten that, and I wouldn't have remembered if my wife hadn't reminded me. I'm like, oh, gosh. So there we go. There's three solid, you know, encounters with the UFO. So that's usually the kind of pattern I see, um, the sort of r repeater effect. Um, that points towards this is probably someone who is having valid contact. Mm -hmm. As we speak okay. uh, at the Starworks USA UFO Symposium, right as we speak right now, my friend and colleague Gwen Farrell is conducting an experiencer session uh, for a person just like you described who's had a close encounter that may have been consciously rem remembered it may have been remembered as uh, part or all of a dream fragment. And so uh, it's a session designed especially for the experiencers. She's doing a, another one tomorrow morning. My, the thought that struck me, Preston, and, and let me get your feedback on this. If we just took his experience as if it were a dream and we used dream interpretive techniques to try to find meaning in there, what would it be to somebody like this man to have a dream where you're not home, you're in a hotel, and so your environment's a little bit different, and you have a visitor in the form of an ET, and they're holding out to you a ball of light. I can think of all sorts of symbolic things that may connect with that. How, how would you approach that if you just said, okay, this is a dream, and where's the meaning here? Right. I mean, that's definitely something you want to be aware of. Um, I don't think it was a dream because it, what he was seeing was matching exactly with what where he was. Often when you have a dream, you'll, it'll be in a completely different location, or like you say, there'll be variations. But if it were a dream, I mean, yeah, there's definitely different ways you can interpret this. Um, being handed a ball of light sounds like a, a revelatory experience, something that's trying to mm -hmm. wake him up. Um, yes. But I don't know, like the typical gray, this is not something he was expecting to see. It, I, it's really hard to say if this was... You know, a dream in the typical sense, uh, and that's why I kind of look for other markers. And what he said, I found, was really interesting because I've heard it before. Is people say they sense these things coming, even though they're already asleep, and it wakes them up. And that is something I've heard a number of times. Some, there's something about these beings, I think, that they invade your dreams a little bit or can wake you up from a sound sleep and you can sense them coming. I don't, I don't know. It's definitely bizarre. Almost, but almost a stage that you might be going through or a precursor to 
that experience. Yeah, I, I have talked to so many people, as you have, Preston, and oftentimes that encounter is symbolic on a number of levels. And I wasn't trying to dismiss it as simply being a dream, but um, trying to use dream interpretive techniques to derive meaning from that. Uh, it sounds like a right. very meaningful experience to somebody. And that would be one of the ways <clears throat> I would go about trying to find out, you know, what that might mean. Uh, you've got this uh, unexplained visitor that suddenly shows up. So it's um, a sudden onset, uninvited. Um, and then there is this idea of the being holding out a ball of light. It's, as you said, it's revelation. It's awakening. Um, it's definitely a change from the normal dreams that one might get from ingesting too much pepperoni pizza right before they went to bed. <laughs> yeah, it's also interesting that this is a seven-foot-tall gray figure, which is something I don't normally hear. Usually it ranges right. about three, four feet, maybe five feet tall, occasionally right. six. I've got a couple seven-foot-tall, though, uh, gray-type beings. And this was not a super frightening experience for him, uh, which I found also interesting. He felt that it was just there to sort of, was peaceful and looking at him. Um, but it was frustrating for him because this light in his hand was so darn bright. Um, he couldn't tell if there was an instrument or if this was just coming right out of his hand or if there was a, an actual ball of light because the light was bright enough to you know illuminate the whole room. But uh, caused figure to be in a silhouette, which is also interesting because that's exactly what happened in the other case I have involving a hotel room. This lady saw a very skinny, large-headed figure standing on the foot of her bed, but she couldn't see any details because there was a very, very bright light behind it, uh, um, a, presumably from an object that was right outside the window, uh, which was shining mm -hmm. a very, very bright red light. Uh, so, yeah, like the 10th story or something like this of Marriott Hotel in Woodland Hills. Uh, wow. <laughs> just crazy where these things can happen. Yes, I <clears throat> I agree. <clears throat> and this is a, a special conference that we're at out here in Laughlin, Nevada. I've had a chance being kind of gregarious and uh, extroverted uh, talking with a number of people that are out here and the people that were seated around me in the conference center, um, there were many first-timers that were out here for the first time because they'd been um, uh, involved in a study group in their hometown and had been listening on video to some of the speakers here and really felt like they wanted to come here. Uh, there were people that said that they had an experience that they were curious about and wanted to see how that fit in. Uh, this Starworks conference is one of the few around that really goes beyond the nuts and bolts and tries to focus on some of the next big questions that may involve uh, uh, the implications of contact, the relationship between humanity and the ET, um, the perhaps common link that we share with these beings which is consciousness. Um, I just think you'd fit in perfectly out here, Preston. 
Yeah, I really have to start doing more conventions. I always enjoy them so much. Hey, so what are you doing these days when you're not working as an accountant trying to put puzzles together during the day? <laughs> trying to maintain my dilapidated little house here. I've got two interviews set up today, so uh, that should be fun. I'm going to talk to a guy who apparently had a healing. Uh, he was suffering from a lot of pain, so bad he couldn't walk, had a series of UFO sightings over his house, and now he's off all his medication. So that should be an interesting story. I'm really looking forward to, talk, to talking to him. And also, I don't know if you remember Kevin Kamen, the Navy medic who saw a 15-foot-tall gray, or I mean a praying mantis, uh, while on board a Navy ship he was taken. Well, he's apparently having some more encounters. He woke up recently. To, found, to find scoop marks on his legs. Now he's, he's a medic, you know, he's a doctor. He instantly recognized that these had not been there before, went to his own doctor, who was very puzzled, went to another doctor, has had three doctors look at this thing. None of them can make heads or tails of it, other than this is a, a fresh scar. It's healed over, but it wasn't there before. So he's freaking out. He's only had one encounter, that one, in his life. And now it looks like he's having encounters again. And he's, what, 60-something? It's like, what is going on? Next year, I'm going to do my best to get you out here to Starworks. I think you'd love it, Preston. Um, we are almost out of time for this segment. We've got to go to the bottom of the hour break. So, Preston, thank you so much for being our buddy, our colleague, and for being here. And, folks, if you type in Preston Dennett, to your favorite search engine, he's going to pop up easy as all heck to find out. So, Preston, I hope you have a, a, a eventful rest of weekend. Thank you, sir. Hey, I will. Thank you, and I'm jealous. i got to get over there at that conference. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> okay, ladies and gentlemen, this, is, this has been Preston Dennett, and uh, always fun to talk with him. The segment is The Seen and the Unseen. I'm Scott Colborn broadcasting live from Laughlin, Nevada, at the Starworks USA UFO Symposium. And uh, we'll go back to Ryan and folks in the Lincoln studio for the bottom of the art break. For the sake of the planet, think before you trash it. Recycling electronics is essential to the well-being of our environment. Computers, phones, TVs, rechargeable batteries, and CFL bulbs contain hazardous materials that are dangerous to humans, animals, and plants. To find out where to donate or to recycle these items, call 402-441-8215 or visit lincoln.ne.gov keyword recycle. What is The Detour all about? Pop, blues, jazz, reggae, ska, Britpop, thrash, glam, southern, Ralph, power pop, experimental, Latin, 
nuclear polka, Japanese, soundtrack, Broadway, sci-fi, cool, bebop, soul, Motown, R&B, swing, new, and stay up late on Thursdays from 10 to midnight and take the detour with AK and occasional guests on KZUM Lincoln and KZUM HD, 89.3 FM, and planet-wide on KZUM.org. Hi, Emperor Visitor from Thailand. You are listening to KCUM Lincoln and KCUM HD. This program is made possible in part by a grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Hi, I've heard that you might like to hear some women sing the blues. That's why I would like you to join me on KZUM 89.3 FM every Friday from 1 to 3 p.m. on Women's Blues and Boogie. I'll play you the best of early and contemporary female blues artists. I'm Carol Griswold, and with these fabulous female artists that I play, who wouldn't have a great time? Your ears will thank you, and always remember that boogie on the side. Hush, hush. You're tuned into a special episode of Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. I am Ryan Evans in the KZUM studio with Jim Shorney and Colleen Newholly, and from uh, Laughlin, Nevada, at the Starworks USA UFO Symposium, Scott Colborn. Hey, gang, this is Scott Colborn uh, broadcasting from the Aquarius Casino and Resort in downtown, <laughs> that's about the only part of it, downtown Laughlin, Nevada. And with me is the Canadian researcher, Grant Cameron. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Grant talked yesterday from 9.30 to 11.30. Um, that two-hour talk was way too short. Now, I told Mr. Cameron that's seated over here on my left that even if he hadn't come up here for the interview today with us, I would still give him this accolade publicly that his presentation was so fascinating that he could have been the only guy that I heard out here this entire weekend, and my my entire trip would have been worth it. So Grant delivered a keynote address yesterday. Uh, Grant Cameron, welcome to the show. Thank you, Scott. I appreciate your kind introduction and your interest in what I'm doing. Um, you got to start back in the 1970s with so many people that you saw something that people referred to as Charlie Red Star. Now, you're in Canada. Tell the listeners what it was that you saw. What what piqued your curiosity? Well, what it was, I was I was not interested in ufology or ETs or any of this kind of stuff. Basically, what it was, I was interested in weird stuff. So I was interested in Edgar Cayce, and I had done a study at the university on dying patients in hospitals. So I'd gone there to talk to chaplains about do people see weird stuff like do they have um, um, 
near-death experiences? Do people come and greet them when they die? Do people predict their death? Is there any miracles? This kind of stuff. So when the UFO thing started, there's a flap started in February of 1975. Um, I said to my friend, because we used to drive around the city and just goof around, and I said, well, uh, let's go and see what they're looking at. And we said, my friend said, okay, we'll go. And we didn't go for three months. And then there was a lo- local TV crew who actually caught it on the ground, and it jumped off the ground. And when, when that happened, then I said, come on, let's go. So we went out to this small town called Carmen, Manitoba, which is just, we're, we're north of North Dakota, and about maybe, this is maybe 25 miles from the border, and so we were driving around in the town, out of the town, we're looking at stars and planets, and we're going, like, what are they looking at? We couldn't figure out what was the big deal. So my friend said, okay, we'll drive back in, this is after an hour, we'll drive back into town one more time, if we don't see anything, let's go home. And I said, fantastic, that's a total waste of time. We drive, and we turned the car to go back into town, and it appeared from the left to the right, and when we had been talking, we had been saying, is, you know, is that what they're looking at? Is that what they're looking at? When it appeared, it was instantaneous. There's three people in the car. I was in the passenger seat. My friend was driving. There's a guy in the back seat. Everybody just went, there it is. We instantly knew this is what people were talking about. It was just so bizarre. And it was not a light in the sky. It was an actual object. It was in pretty close. And it came from the left. It came from, from the American border side. And it was down low in front of the car. And it was, it was pulsing very, very slowly. It was almost like it was alive. It was a red plasma object, and it was pulsing slowly, and it was actually bobbing up and down. So it was moving up and down, and it was down low in front of the car, maybe 100, 150 feet in the air, very close to the car, maybe half mile down, and flew right in front of the car, and I was, like, just floored. And it was going in behind. There was a bunch of school buses parked outside this town, and I could see there was going to go in behind the school buses. So I was actually getting out of the car while the car was still moving because I wanted to get through the ditch and across the parking lot. And I remember going to the buses, between the buses, and I watched this thing as it just slowly flew off into the northeast. And I, and, and I can still remember this day, and the second night, same thing happened, where it, it sort of flew as it came right at us the second night, and then sort of made a turn and went off into the northeast. And I, I remember looking at it and going, what's it doing? It just didn't, didn't seem to be doing anything. It was almost like, and then 35 years later, I got this revelation. I'm going, I wonder, because if they, they had not filmed this thing, the TV crew had not filmed this thing, I never would have gone. Because we were just sort of goofing around. We had no interest. And um, so then I was thinking 35 years later, it may have been because they wanted me out there. And, I, and that I'd never occurred for 35 years. Because what happened with the TV crew was they had tried to capture this thing on the ground. And the first night, they um, they almost got it. So they all booked overtime. So they went back with this whole TV crew and reporters and stuff like that. And they booked overtime. And the, the, associate, the assistant news producer was just furious. He said, you guys want to do this UFO thing, you can go on your own time. So the second night when they went out, they had a volunteer crew. Nobody was being paid for this thing. So when it was on the ground, they knew they'd almost got it the night before, and the guy that was filming wasn't even a cameraman. He was a, he was a, he was a film editor, and he had the big TV camera, and they'd left him on the road, and they'd gone down, and they'd surrounded this thing, and it jumped up in the air. So he's filming, and you can see this object rising and falling, on the, sitting on the ground, and it's getting brighter and going down. And he said, the next time it gets brighter, I'm going to shoot because we need to have something. So he, he, he started to get brighter, and he shot, and that's when it jumped in the air. And it was 35 years later, I realized, that, that wasn't random. That happened. He, it was like the UFO was saying, okay, you ready to shoot? Here we go. And, and he caught this thing. It was only six inches of film. It became a viral film. NBC picked it up. They were in a real bad position with this guy that he had never been paid for this film. So when NBC came in, they gave him 50 bucks and told him to keep his mouth shut about the fact that the crew had not been paid or anything like that. 
And they got away with it. But at the end, the guy actually took the film. When he left the TV studio, he said, to heck with them. They didn't pay anybody for this. And so when I went back and Charlie Red Star was finally published, they wouldn't publish in the 70s, but it was published last year. I went back to the TV station. And I said, do you happen to have that uh, Charlie Red Star six-inch film? And they went, no, we've been looking for it. We can't find it. And I know, I know exactly where it is. But I, haven't, I don't know where the, the film editor, I did interviewed all these guys. And they would tell me bizarre things like the, the big uh, uh, TV reporter that was with them. I asked him and he said, he saw it before it was edited and it was backwards. It went across the sky, so it jumped in the sky and then it went across the sky. And whenever the camera was in a stationary position, he caught it. Whenever the thing was moving, it wasn't on the film or it was so light that they... So what happened was when they edited it, they just cut these two six-inch pieces out when it jumped in the sky and when it went across the sky. But the, the head reporter said, I saw it before it was edited and it was backwards. It went across the sky and then jumped in the air. And I went, what? And he said, I know what it sounds like, but I told you, I saw it before it was edited. So these, these bizarre things, and I just sort of fell off the edge of the earth. And I, my, my other two friends that were with me, they just went on with their life. But with me, it affected me greatly. Yes. And after the second sighting, I dragged all my friends out there for the second sighting. And after an hour, they said, oh, Cameron, we're going home. This is a waste of time. We're, I remember, we're hungry. We're going back to Winnipeg for pizza. And they all took off on me, and there was only about eight people left. And the second night when it came out, it was down low again. It was coming directly at us. First, it was jumping around the sky. Then it came directly at us. And um, so I said to myself, well, this has got to be the most this is the most bizarre thing I've ever seen. It's got to be like a worldwide story. And I said, well, why is nobody interviewing the town? Because the rumor was that half the town had seen the thing. So I started this process of interviewing everybody in the town that I, that I could find. And it would always be the same story. I'd go to someone and say, Scott, I heard you saw something. <laughs> and then they'd go, who said I saw something? <laughs> and then I'd say, oh, so-and-so told me. And then they go, well, it really wasn't anything. It was like a script. Well, it really wasn't anything. I said, well, tell me what you saw. And then it would be like, there's a UFO sitting in the middle of the road or something like that. And then they would, they would always end the same way. They'd say, I was the only one that saw it, you know. And I'd say, really? Oh, yeah, so-and-so. And, so. and they'd give me this list. And at one point, I had 300 people on a list. I didn't even interview. And they were all sort of writing each other out. So I put the manuscript together. <laughs> and, and nobody was interested. Even the local publisher in Winnipeg said, Mr. Cameron, you may believe in this kind of stuff. Count me among the unbelievers. And I was sort of, I was floored. I thought this was an amazing story. And that's when I decided that I would go after the government because I had seen it myself. So I know what I saw. And there, and I've never mm-hmm. wanted to do sky watches or anything like that because I, I saw it so close that I really don't care to see UFOs anymore. All I was interested after the publisher said we're not interested in it is I said, someone must, someone must know what I saw. Mm-hmm. I, I'm just this little, you know, country guy from Canada. But there's got to be someone. So that's when I went after the Canadian government. Because synchronistically, my father was a pilot for the, for the Canadian government. And there's a radar tech in his office. My father said, oh, Ernie F. wants to talk to you. He's got a sighting. And it was nothing, just an ordinary sighting that he had had in, in the area there. And then he said, you know, if you really want to know what's going on with UFOs, you should uh, investigate what the Canadian government was doing back from 1950 to 1954. And I said, really? He said, yeah, I worked on the program. And I went, what? You worked on the program? And Because it's like 1,500 miles away. And synchronistically, this guy, there's only about, um, well, there's maybe six people plus the radar tech. So there's only about seven or eight people that worked on this whole thing, this in private sort of investigation. You I had a chance to talk to one of them. And, and, and I hey, happened to be in my father's office. So this is the synchronistic thing where Wonderful. what's the chances? So that's when I went and I went and interviewed uh, Wilbur Smith, who ran the Canadian program, who was a contactee. We kept it secret for many years, was, a, was an experiencer. Um, I went to talk to his wife. He had died in 62, but I went to talk to his wife, and she was just retiring from the Canadian government at the time. 
and very upset because we were in Ottawa and the the French issue was coming up. So the French, you had to, if you're a government employee, you had to learn to speak French and all the English people there were furious, like, why are we, you know, kowtowing to the, the French people? So when she was leaving, she was very furious about all this stuff going on in the government. She was the secretary of the Speaker of the Senate. So I talked to her maybe two days before she retired and she was ready to talk. And she was telling me all this stuff. Oh, AFA this, AFA that. And AFA was the alien that they were, that Wilbur was dealing with. And it was like she was talking about the, the family dog or something. It was just bizarre. Mm-hmm. She was so open about the whole thing. And we went to her son's place. And her son was the one that Wilbur, when he, um, near, the end, near the end of his life, he was dying of cancer. So he knew he was dying. He told his wife, he said, when I die, they're going to come try to get my files. So I don't care who asks, you, you do not give the files up. So they had actually hidden them at the son's place. And she said that, so sure enough, when Wilbur died, she got a visit from the Canadians, the Americans, and the Russians. And they all said they'd like to see Wilbur's files for research purposes. And she said, she all told them she'd burned them. She, she had destroyed the files. And then she said that's when the break-in started at the house. And you could tell they were looking for the files because nothing would be missing, but the house would be broken into. And so I did the Canadian thing, and I learned all this, that, that Wilbur Smith had, you know, had this top-secret memo he dealt with the American officials on the on the subject. They're sort of they're in the loop at the time, and then in '54 they shut it down, and that led me to um, um, Dr. Eric Walker, who's the former president of Penn State University, who was partly involved with the Canadian, the American government at the time, and his files were going to go to the American government, American government to the the Truman Library. That's when I got into the president. So I went looking for Walker's files, who was connected to Canadian. And was when I got there, there was really nothing there. It was a 52 overflight. There was a bunch of telegrams that people had sent to the president because the president had given a shoot-down order. And all these telegrams had come in, Mr. President, don't shoot these things down. So they had these telegrams at the Truman Library, but other than that, they really didn't have anything. And then I'm thinking, well, this guy's the most powerful guy in the world. He's got to know what's going on. And that's when I started this search of going from archive to archive, different presidents, and gathering up those stories about presidents seeing things and, and the files that they had. Um, it, it, in part of your bio, you, you mention um, the search that led you to this gentleman, Dr. Eric Walker, who was identified by Dr. Robert Sarbacher. Yeah. The Sarbacher correspondence with William Steinman, yeah. I've always felt has been something that is of tremendous interest that hasn't gotten a lot of play in ufology. Yeah. Um, I first encountered it in the back of Timothy Good's book, mm-hmm. Above Top Secret. And so I did some research on who Robert Sarbacher was mm-hmm. and why there should be weight given to what he said. He was replying to correspondence from researcher William Steinman. And he said, I wasn't involved in the crash retrievals in the study, but I can tell you who was. Yeah. And he lists people by name. Yeah. So I, I pointed to people and I said, you know, we don't have, although you might be able to disagree with that now with the, with the metal, we don't have a fragment that we can conclusively say is extraterrestrial. We don't have a, um, at least in public, uh, a, uh, an ET that, that we can prove the existence of. But we've got these sorts of trails, these smoking guns. And I find it interesting the way it unfolded for you, Grant, that you were this intelligent guy, you'd heard about something going on, you went out there to satisfy your curiosity, and of all your friends, 
you were the one that this really spoke to, and it's changed your life, hasn't it? Absolutely. I mean, it's, I, I've never. I, I left for maybe ten years while my son was. He was playing hockey. Hockey's a big thing there. So I spent a lot of time taking him to the rink and stuff. And so for about ten years, I was out. But otherwise, I've been totally obsessed. I mean, it's been my job was just to make money and, and get enough money so I can quit and do this. And then I, I was able to retire and. Um, it's been everything that I do. That's basically all I do. And it's been these bizarre synchronicities where you run into like somebody in my father's office and that leads to this, uh, the Sarbacher thing, which, uh, he claimed that he had, um, he had been invited to the, the these briefings at Wright Patterson Air Force Base in 1950. And that he had been working on the Canadian do line, working on our doctorate degrees. He was president of Penn State university. He was chairman of the board of the Institute for defense analysis. Uh, he was uh, did an, uh, an engineering study for President Eisenhower. He was friends with Milton Eisenhower, the president's brother. And you run into these bizarre things where what's the chances we've got this guy? And he sort of led us into this um, um, uh, track where I can't talk about it. Go study something else. Uh, unless you have the mind of Einstein, you're never going to figure this thing out. And later when I had my sort of download experience that um, sort of moved me to consciousness, Part of that, I, there's three items that came into my head instantaneously, and one of them was this conversation that we'd had. Somebody had had, because I really didn't talk to Walker, and I never really talked to any of the people. I always go to people who are in between, because I don't want, even now, there's one person on two of the stars. I talked to this guy, and I said, you know, I'd like to know this, and he said, I'll tell you anything you want to know, but mm -hmm. it has to be off the record. And I went, well, no, I don't really want to do that. So I usually go to people who talk to them. Mm -hmm. But what had happened with, with Walker is that he's been interviewed by this British guy, and that's when Walker, he's asking Walker about MJ-12, this famous rumored group that runs the whole program, and 12 guys that, that yeah, actually Wilbur Smith had actually referred to in a top-secret memo that said, we were told by American officials flying saucers exist as the most highly classified subject. There's a small group headed by Dr. Vannevar Bush. And it was uh, that sort of statement when Walker said to us, we asked him about MJ-12, what about MJ-12? Is it still just 12 guys? And is it all still American? And he said, let me ask you a question. What do you know about ESP? And the guy had no answer, so Walker said, look, unless you understand about ESP and how it works, you will not be taken into the control group. And that was something that later on would fit is the whole idea of consciousness. It's all got to do with this non-local consciousness idea. And unless you understand, it can, and you, the majority of the ufology is still in the nuts and bolts. Yeah. They're rejecting this idea that there's anything to do with consciousness or this sort of woo-woo uh, parapsychology stuff. And in the end, Walker gave me this this clue was that it's all the same thing. You're just giving it different names. It's coming in different formats, different contact modalities and stuff, but it's all the same thing. If you if you look at, and that's the lecture I gave yesterday, if you look at the facts of the dual slit experiment that was done many, many years ago, there's the concept there that it may all be consciousness and that consciousness is primary to the universe. So if it's a nuts and bolts universe, then it's one world. But if the basis of the universe is consciousness, which creates matter, if the quantum wave produces a, a particle on the back wall, when the observer comes in, if it's, a, if it's an observer world where you're influencing what you're seeing, it's a completely different world. You have to rewrite all your equations, review everything, because you probably got majority of things wrong because you've got the basic assumption is wrong. It's not a nuts and bolts universe. It's a consciousness universe. And then when you look at it, then you start to see the fact that it ties into 
uh, near-death experiences. It ties into psychics. It ties into all this sort of stuff. And that's proved by the fact that about a week ago, Lou Elizondo, who's the sort of the, one of the key guys on To the Stars, gave a lecture in um, Italy. And in that lecture, he outed the, um, the weird desk at the CIA. And I've been chasing the weird desk for like 20 years. So they had three guys. One was Art Lundahl was the first guy that ran the weird desk. And he was the head of the National Photographic Interpretation Center. And the second guy was Kit Green. So Kit Green was a neurologist, a physiologist, a medical guy for the CIA who ran this weird desk. And the guy that's running it now is Ron Pandolfi. And the idea behind the weird desk is it's not just UFOs. So, uh, for example, Stephen Greer will call it the CIA desk. But it's actually called the weird desk. And that is because uh, Kit Green, when he ran it, he was a control officer for the remote viewing program at SRI. And plus he had the UFO stuff. So anything that was weird, anything parapsychology, yeah, you know, into that desk. So it's called the weird desk. And that's the more accurate name. It's not because it's all tied together and they know this. So when I do the research now, I'm doing the research with To the Stars. They're working with these experiencers. And I applaud them for doing this because that's the whole key is you can look at all the metal you want. Uh, you, can, you, can, you can look at all the, the, uh, the UFO sightings. But it's not until you actually get to um, the, what's going on if you talk to the experiencers. And the experiencers will basically tell you exactly what, what this is all about. And that's what they're dealing with. So to the stars has actually gone to the experiencers and said to them, so what do you, what do you think? What are you being told? And they're gathering this material. And that's where I say the answer will be is with the people who are interacting with the phenomenon. Mm -hmm. This is Grant Cameron and an easy link. If you type into your favorite search engine, presidential UFO, um, it's going to pop up quick. Uh, Grant, we're going to take the top of the hour break here. Can you stay with us? Sure. Okay. This is Grant Cameron. I'm Scott Colborn, and we're here at the Starworks USA UFO Symposium in Laughlin, Nevada. In the Lincoln studio is Ryan Evans and Jim Shorty and Colleen Newholly. And guys and gals worldwide, thanks so much. We've got a lot more to talk about. Ryan, I'm going to turn it back over to you folks in the studio. Thank you, Scott, and we will be right back with the second half of Exploring Unexplained Phenomena here on KZUM Lincoln and KZUM HD. Support for KZUM comes from family-owned and operated Butheris Mason and Love Funeral Home at 40th and A Streets in Lincoln. Offering services that allow families to plan ahead according to personal wishes, chapel facilities to accommodate all faiths, and grief support materials for the family following a service. More information is available at 402-488-0934 and online at bmlfh.com. Each year since 1964, hundreds of women have begun the path to recovery at St. Monica's. As Lincoln's only behavioral health treatment center exclusively for women, St. Monica's is committed to the recovery of women of all ages through empowerment, stability, and self-fulfillment. A variety of residential and outpatient programs, including a home for mothers and their children, serve women facing substance abuse and mental health challenges. For more on St. Monica's, call 402-441-3768 or visit stmonicas.com.
It's eight minutes after 11 here at the KZUM studios in beautiful College View, Lincoln, Nebraska. I am Ryan Evans here on Exploring Unexplained Phenomena, a special episode today here in the studio, joined by Jim Shorney and Colleen Newholly. And from Laughlin, Nevada at the Starworks USA UFO Symposium, Scott Colborn. Hi, gang. This is Scott Colborn with Grant Cameron. And again, I wish, Grant, that we could have been on the air just during what you and I said here off the off the break. Um, so we know that people back in the 50s had already decided to move beyond nuts and bolts and that they they found themselves in that area of consciousness. Uh, it seems like it would have almost been in some ways tougher going because they didn't have a lot of resources for consciousness studies back in the 50s, but they also didn't have a lot of the baggage that that we now have. Um, you had a revelatory experience in 2012 that really shifted you. And folks, uh, again, Grant was a keynote speaker here at the, uh, the conference. I said in our first part of the program that had I just heard his presentation and walked away, it would have been worth the entire trip out here to Laughlin. Grant talked about being in a Colin Andrews lecture in 2012, and something happened that really changed his life further. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. This had to do with this consciousness revelation, and I always make the joke that before then, I had no interest in consciousness. I probably couldn't have spelled the word, and I probably couldn't have cared less. <laughs> So I and, and this is what Mike. What I'm writing an article now um, called "Contact Modalities," and one of the ones I use to get the contact with whatever this field is that has the answers is to walk. The other one that I had was 2012. I'm here in Laughlin, uh, down the road at a different casino, and I'm listening to a lecture by Colin Andrews. And it's one of these things where I'm really not interested in crop circles. I'm still not interested in crop circles. I know Colin Andrews, and I went because he was a respected researcher, a top researcher. So I figured I should pay him the respect and go and watch his lecture. Mm -hmm. But I'm really not interested. So I'm sitting there, and I'm sort of zoning out in the lecture. I'm really listening. And he's talking about consciousness and crop circles. And his idea was that there are 20% that are real. They're made by the ETs, the intelligence, whatever. And then there's 80% that are hoax, and they're also influenced. The, they're being influenced by the, the intelligence. He's telling them what, what circles to put down. And he had these references to this guy would have a crop circle that he wanted to hoax, and he would go in, into a field and put it, and there was people meditating in the field, women meditating, the exact same pattern in the field. And so he had these bizarre stories. So that was what his lecture was. And it was during that lecture where uh, I suddenly got three things that came into my head instantaneously. There were things that I had already discovered, and one was um, the this... Um, uh, statement that um, the Canadian government had gotten in 1950. So the Canadian government had got this memo, uh, had written this top-secret memo, one of the few top-secret memos in the UFO world, and that was where Wilbur Smith had gone to the American officials, not to people on the street, but to officials, because he was at a very high level, and they had told him flying saucers exist, it's one of the highly classified subjects in the United States, Dr. Vannevar Bush is running the program. It's of tremendous significance to the Americans. And what popped into my head was the very next line, which I knew, but I'd never really put in a lecture or anything. And it said, we were also told by American officials that other things might be associated with the flying saucers, such as mental phenomena. And the Americans aren't doing very well because they said, if we're working on the on this subject, 
they're willing to exchange credentials and talk to us. So that popped into my head. And so it indicated already that in 1950, the Americans had told the Canadians that mental phenomena was part of the UFO thing. And that's very important. People like telepathy, like ESP. Yeah, well, this, at whatever it is. But it, the thing was that at that time, there was nobody talking to aliens. The first alien contact wasn't until Adamski. And that was a couple of days after the detonation of the hydrogen bomb in 1952. This is back in 1950. So the question comes down to, how did the Americans know that mental phenomena was involved in the UFO thing? Interesting. And and I, I look back and I think maybe one of the things was like before we used to think there was Roswell and there was four dead bodies. And then the later stories came out and said there was one live one and it was talking in people's heads. And that would make sense for the classification that if you're an American intelligence official and you suddenly have an alien that's talking in people's heads, you go, wow, would we love to be able to do this. Mm-hmm. And so that's when they started in the 1950s to start the MK Ultra program, and it started in Canada, 60 miles from where Wilbur Smith wrote this memo. It starts at, at McGill University in Montreal, where they start with Ian Cameron, and they start all these LSD experiments. And I say it wasn't because they wanted to drug people with LSD; it was because they had this consciousness problem they had to solve, and they're trying to figure out how does consciousness work because they want to use it for a weapon. They've got this live alien, and they're trying to figure this out. That was the one thing that came into my head, and, and these all came simultaneously. The other thing that came into my head, and Jan Harzen, the head of MUFON, is here. And he's speaking in in about an hour and a half. And um, the second thing he had in 1993, where he had been at a lecture by Ben Rich, the president of Lockheed Skunk Works. And Jan had heard this very close encounter at nine years old, 30 feet away from his flying saucer in his backyard. And like like me, it had sort of flipped his life upside down. He became an engineer, electrical engineer. He wanted to try to develop a system. He and his brother were trying to build a flying saucer when they were like 10 years old. They had these ideas of how they flew. And um, when so when Ben Rich gave this lecture, at the end of his lecture, the last slide, Ben Rich said, he has this flying saucer on the on the screen, and he says, we now have the technology to take E.T. home. Mm-hmm. And, of course, John Hartson goes, what, what, what? Because his whole life he's been fascinated with UFO technology. So he chases Ben Rich after a series of questions that Ben asks, answers about this. He's going out of the building, and Jan realizes, I've got to talk to this guy. This is my, this is my own, only chance. He runs up, and he said, I need to know. I've been obsessed my whole life. How does how do flying saucers work? How does the propulsion system work? And Jan turns around, and he says, let me ask you a question. What do you know about ESP? And that's when Jan says, he says, I didn't expect a question. So he said, uh, it means everything in time and space is connected. And he went, that's how it works. And he gets in his car and drives away. The, the third thing that came into my head was that was 1993. We had been talking to Walker in 1991, and that's when Walker had said, when we were asking about MJ-12, he said, let me ask you a question. What do you know about ESP? And it was two years before he had that same question. What do you know about ESP? And he said, unless you understand about ESP and how it works, you will not be taken in. And that becomes the key. So that's what flips me is to say, they're saying ESP, this non-local consciousness. First of all, there was just consciousness. Then I realized, no, it was non-local consciousness. And that's where you get something like uh, uh, Russell Tart around the remote viewing program, who says it is as easy to remote view in the past and the future as it is in the present moment. <laughs> it is as easy to remote view on the other side of the earth as it is right here. And that's this whole idea. All things in time and spaces are connected. You, you, there is no time and space. It's all one thing. And that's how you can move. So the whole idea is, are the ships actually flying through space at past the speed of light, or are they moving because it's all one thing. They can just move from here to here instantaneously in space. 
and it started to get this road is, wow, this may be the answer to the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And when I started looking at it, it started, it's almost like you put on glasses and now you can suddenly read the stop sign and the street signs and stuff the like that. prescription glasses, yeah. Yeah, and, and it, it started to unfold. And, and, and then the next thing that happened to me after that, you, there's all these synchronous events. So I give one of my first consciousness lectures, and I was sort of, I was, a lot of people weren't happy. I mean, I got the award for the, the International Researcher of the Year, and I think, you know, looking back, they may not have given it to me if they, if they had, if this had happened earlier on. And so I was in Phoenix, Arizona, giving a lecture on consciousness, and the, the head of the MUFON group there said, are you still going to talk to Pam? This was Pam Dupuy, who just actually died a couple months ago. And and she said, um, I said, well, yeah, I guess so, because I figured I must have agreed to talk to this woman. And so after the, the conference on the Monday, this Pam Dupuy comes to me at this house where I'm staying. And she said, what did Stacy tell you about? And I said, I don't know, I'm just supposed to talk to you. That's good. And she was walking in the house, she talks about, you know, I'm a road viewer for the government, and I was abducted as a kid, and she's going through all this stuff. And I'm like, ah, yeah, yeah, I've heard all this stuff before. And then she drops the bomb. She says, oh, and I was flying the ship last night. Anyway, what? You're flying the ship? The flying saucer? And she you're says, flying the flying saucer. Yeah, and I said, you're flying the flying saucer? And she says, yeah. And I said, they let you fly the flying saucer? Because she's like a 70-some old year lady. And I said, they let you fly the flying saucer? They make any sense? And she said, yeah, I've flown three different models. And then, of course, <laughs> then I said to her, I said, well, how do you fly a flying saucer? And then she said, well, you do it with your mind. Yeah, what do and you then, know about ESP? Yeah, and then it's like, it's like the light came on. I went, wow. And now I have 50, and I played about five of them. And, yes, I, played, and I played more than one because people will say, oh, Pam, Pam Dupuy just made it up, whatever. But what yesterday I showed a woman from Boulder, Colorado. Then I showed a, a guy from uh, the, the East Coast. Then I showed a 747 United Airlines pilot who had flown. And then I talked about an F-16 retired Air Force colonel from California who had done it. And it's like they're reading off a script card. They come in, there's beings, they don't know if it's humans or if it's uh, uh, military people behind them, and they're, they're standing in the ship, and a lot of them don't know what to do, and they say, I don't know what to do, and whatever these voices behind them says, you know what to do, just do it. And then they put their hand either on a straight panel, there is no, there is no uh, controls, almost like uh, Cat Stevens. I do the whole music thing, the whole connection between musicians mm-hmm. and Cat Stevens was an abductee, the famous musician in the 70s. Became a Muslim, now doesn't talk about it. But he wrote a song called Freezing Steel. I was on the house, the house of freezing steel, the house without the guiding wheel. He wrote that in 1972. And everybody says the same thing. There's no wheel. There's no control panel or whatever. You put your hand on a panel or you put your hand on a ball. And you just put your hand, and you can take your hand off it. And, and that's all you need to do. And you become, the craft is alive. You become one with the craft. And whatever you think is exactly what the craft does. Mm-hmm. And you, I've got 50 people now, and they all basically, like, they're reading off a cue card. It's exactly the same thing. They're all telling the same story. So these these uh, these pads, um, the, the, the surface is in some way uh, much more advanced than our touchscreen computers that we've got, where when I go to check out, the gal or guy will reach up and they'll tap the screen and... They're directing the computer to do certain functions by where they touch the screen. Mm-hmm. And so this is now a more involved, more evolved um, um, link. That, And what I found interesting is that once a person apparently touches that surface, they can raise their hand off, mm-hmm. but they're still connected now. 
So they can sit there and, and if it was Grant Cameron, you could say, um, I want to be back in Winnipeg. And, and be there instantaneously. That craft would yeah. be in Winnipeg. Yeah. One guy described it to me. He said, it's like you look out the window and you see a cloud and you say, I'd like to go to the cloud. And suddenly the cloud is right in front of you. It's not like you fly to the cloud. It's like the cloud comes mm-hmm. to you and it's instantaneously. Or I had a guy uh, flown the craft from from Utah and he they asked him, they said, what would you what would you like to do? And he said, I'd like to see the Milky Way galaxy from a distance. And they said, this is going to, this is going to be a, a sort of a jolt as this thing starts. He said it was no more than two seconds. And suddenly he's looking out the window, and there's the Milky Way in the distance, and he's out in space. And you see that kind of technology. And we are developing. That's where I sort of went. As I said, you can see from the technology we are starting to develop. I have a, a thing called a muse that I use for meditation. And what it does is it reads your brain signal, and, and this is the whole key. So you, you have a brain signal of calmness. And then it, it, it'll either tell, make noise of rain or birds. So if you're in the zone, it's birds. And if, it's, if you're out of the zone, it's rain. And that's, it's this biofeedback device you can do with your brain. Or the one I showed in, in the lecture was, this is 19, uh, 2004. So this is back 14 years already, where they take 20,000 neurons from a rat brain. They put them in a Petri dish. And they wire the, the electrodes into an F-22 simulator fighter jet. And they teach this. So they send a, a high-frequency signal in, and the, the, brain, the brain pattern of these neurons sends a, a, the opposite signal back, and they train it with these high signals. So this is, folks, this is important. I'm going to back Grant up because this, I almost fell off my chair in the lecture hall yesterday. They literally took 20,000 neurons from a rat brain, put them in a Petri dish. They began to organize. They then put equipment that is connected to or alongside this Petri dish to a flight simulator that I would have a hard time operating. And this rat brain that doesn't have eyes, that doesn't have tactile fingers, opposable thumbs, is then able to fly that flight simulator. And you showed pictures of it. Yeah, there, there's actually a video. If people Google rat brain and F-22, this, this video will pop up. Incredible. Where they do this. And they actually, in the end, they, they taught it to fly, and then they would change the weather. And they actually had, like, you know, huge, huge winds, rain, thunder, whatever, the worst conditions you had. And the, the little 20,000 neurons was able to adapt and continue to fly the, the simulator at this. And you got to remember, this is white world technology 2004. And we've heard that DARPA is working on this later. That there is this symbiotic relationship. Is if you can get a fighter jet where the pilot is is sort of there where they're reading his brain signal, all you have to do is think go right, go left, and you it does whatever you want. Mm-hmm. Becoming one with the craft, which is this idea of these people flying the flying saucer. The only difference is is that with us, you still need it wired to the brain. With them, it's this telepathic thing. You can take your hand off the pad, mm-hmm. and then you can just sit down on the floor, and you are telepathically in oneness with this with the craft and doing whatever you want and the craft has this ability to sort of go through time and space or uh, you know uh, some people even describe uh, Susie Hansen actually describes where they take her through the middle of the earth and she's all petrified and they say don't worry and they go right through the middle of the earth with the craft and stuff like that. so you see that they're very much more advanced but we're moving down that road you see the technology is going that direction. 
uh, Grant, you gave a definition of consciousness yesterday, uh, because this whole conference is really focused on that, that what do we do after nuts and bolts? Where does this all take us? What are some of the big questions? How are those organized? Uh, and can you tell us again your definition of consciousness? Yeah. Well, my definition of consciousness is much simpler than everybody else. I just say it's awareness. And people will make all sorts of definitions by saying, oh, you got to be self-aware. And I point out the fact that, no, if you take high-dose psilocybin or LSD, the ego disappears. Yourself actually disappears, but you're still conscious. So it's not self-awareness. And other people will say there's even some um, philosophers who say, oh, you got to be able to speak. You're not conscious until you speak. Or animals aren't conscious. And this sort of stuff. And they're making these sort of definitions that sort of define their own, uh, you know, worldview. And I say it's just basically awareness. So if you're aware, you're conscious. And, and I go back to this dual split experiment idea or the, the particle entanglement experiment where you're, uh, the particle, uh, you have a, a wave. It's hard to explain the thing, but there's this dual split experiment where you have this quantum wave that changes. When there's an observer, it changes to a particle. So the, what I say is whatever this quantum wave is, whatever you want to call this thing, when the observer appears, the wave or whatever it is knows, oh, there's an observer, and it turns into a particle. And then it, when the observer disappears, it says, oh, the observer's gone, and it turns back to a wave. So it's aware of this, this whole thing. It's conscious, the same as the, the, the entangled particle experiment, where they take one entangled particle, spin it one direction in the speed of light, one in the other. You change the spin of the one, and the other will instantaneously, wherever it is in the galaxy, will change its spin to balance. So the one particle knows that you're messing with the other particle. It's aware of what you did to the other particle. Amazing. So it almost goes to consciousness is primary. It's this whole idea. And that with the quantum wave thing, it's this quantum wave. It, it doesn't turn into a particle until there's an observer. So I say there is no matter until there's an observer. It's not like the particle in the back wall is creating the observer. It's when the observer appears, the quantum wave changes to a particle. So all particles are caused by the observer looking at it. And whereas in neurology today, people will say, oh, there's all these particles on the back wall, and they all just randomly bang into each other and create a brain, and that creates consciousness. The dual slit shows quite clearly that there is no particles until there's an observer. So consciousness is primary. And when you get that, then the whole world changes. Then you start to review everything and say, if it's all consciousness, then it's, if you have people going being taken through walls in an abduction experience, you go, oh, that's, you know, it's like you, you make the right assumption and say it's all consciousness and everything's all space. It's not a solid thing. Then you go, well, how hard could it be? We're just making false assumptions. We're, we're assuming things that aren't true. And when you get to the right underlying basis, that consciousness is there, that things aren't solid and these sort of things, then you go, oh, this, the, end, the technology starts to make sense. And I think that the, the, say the black world or the people that are working on it, understand these concepts. So you can see with To the Stars where they're dealing with these experiences and they're doing things like they, they give everybody a number and then they have an intuitive. And you think like, wow, man, this is, but they're keeping very secret that they're using intuitives, which you think is like wacko world. And they tell the intuitive, okay, who's this person? They, so every person that's in this program that's been injured by a UFO, whatever the number, one zero zero one zero zero two, they say, okay, zero zero one, tell us about this guy. And the intuitive will describe, oh, this person says that, and apparently 95% accurate. Then they'll say, okay, who are they dealing with? And this is Kit Green. This is the guy who used to, was the running, weird disc, running the weird desk. And he's asking the questions. And the, the intuitive says, oh, there's this portal off the coast of California. 
and uh, this fourth dimensional portal, and they're dealing with these beings, and they're talking about the others, and you're going like, wow, I mean, this is like Kid Green, this is like this top scientist at Wayne State University, and but they're on the leading edge, and that would make sense that you go there even and you keep it very quiet because these guys worked on remote They realize there's all these weird things. So if you're going to research the UFO thing, why would you not bring into remote viewing? You knew that remote viewing worked, so you use remote viewing. Can we figure out what's going on by talking to a remote viewer? And you see this kind of leading-edge stuff that I think we need to do rather than saying, you know, we want to be conservative, we don't want to say something stupid, we're scientists, it's all material, we don't know what's going on. And ufology has done a lot of that. Just play this game, well, we don't know what's going on, we're not really certain, and stuff like that. You've got to get on the leading edge, and you've got to say, this is a theory, it's, it's, we're not saying this is absolutely for real, but you've got to be on the leading edge to advance. You know, Grant, uh, I don't know if, if you've ever heard of James Goodall, the aviation science writer, but <laughs> yeah. he told me um, uh, that he had a deal with Ben Rich that it never panned out, but his deal was that he was going to sit down and do a no-holds-barred interview with Ben Rich. Uh, Mr. Goodall said that the subject matter was going to be on UFOs. It was totally, um, there were no limitations. The only caveat was that Rich said that he couldn't publicize or release it until after his death. They had this arrangement and Goodall says that's one of the things that I've never been able to, if I could go back in my time machine, I would do that because Mr. Rich died before they could get to that point. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And, and they knew, like, even with To, to the Stars, Tom DeLong talks about going to, he, he seems to indicate he was at Lockheed at Area 51, and that he's talking to the head guy who wasn't Ben Rich, he was uh, Robert White at this so Robert Weiss and the head scientists are there. And the head scientist says to him, so I just want to know how they work. How does it work? And then Tom says, well, I think this. And he says, that's a good idea. What else? And, of course, he was, Tom DeLong started with Stephen Greer. And Stephen Greer does this meditation thing with the five and stuff. So he says, I think consciousness is involved. And he said, at that point, the head scientist, for 45 minutes, all he would talk about is science, uh, consciousness. And he said that that's all the guy was interested in. And he couldn't stop this guy from talking about it. And so you get this idea that Ben Rich had, they had this locked up at Lockheed Skunkers. They may not have developed any technology about it, but they understood this basic concept that this was, this was a key to the thing. And that's the, the whole deal is if you can link into these people like Ben Rich or Robert Weiss or not, I think it's run by a woman. Uh, these people have the ideas. And if you get to them from time to time, they will give you a little hint as to what's going on. This is Grant Cameron. Um, Go to presidentialufo.com, and uh, there are books, for example, like the uh, Charlie Red Star book that we mentioned earlier, True Reports of One of North America's Biggest UFO Sightings, Tuned In, The Paranormal World of Music. And I believe it was last year that you gave a talk, was it, or two years ago that you gave a talk on that. Yeah, I, yeah. Uh, the Clinton UFO Storybook. Managing Magic, the government's UFO disclosure plan, uh, inspired the paranormal world of creativity, which has got a great front cover there. Uh, Alien Bedtime Stories, and I think that was the last time I talked to you here on the show, yeah. was about that book. Uh, Mirroring Worlds, Channeled Reflections from Higher Dimensions, 
And this is your colleague, uh, Destin Barnaby. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Grant, I've got to take the bottom of the hour break, and we're short on time here, and you've been so gracious. When we come back, I'd like to have you, if you can stay with us a little bit longer, talk about Ricardo Gonzalez versus the Skinwalker Ranch. Sure. Yeah. Good aliens, bad aliens, manifesting intention, because that, that, to me, really struck a chord in me. So. Here. Can we? Sure. Thank you, Grant. Yeah. Okay, uh, ladies and gentlemen, this is Grant Cameron along with Scott Colborn. We're on the 11th floor of the Aladdin Casino Resort in downtown sunny today, Laughlin, Nevada. And exploring unexplained phenomena, we're going to send you back to the Lincoln studio. Good afternoon, KZMAs. This is KZUM Lincoln and KZUM HD. Located at 89.3 on your FM dial in Lincoln, Nebraska. KZUM 89.3 FM. Lincoln, Nebraska's nonprofit radio broadcast home of your favorite, of your favorite. Music. music. Stay tuned to KZUM, the world's greatest radio station. Scientifically proven to be so by experiments on live human subjects. You are listening to KZUM Lincoln and KZUM HD. I'd like to thank you, the listening audience. All right, I love KZUM. There you go. How's that, huh? Support for This Week in Lincoln comes from The Bay, The Bourbon Theater, Duffy's Tavern, and The Zoo Bar. This is live music happening this week in Lincoln. Saturday, November 3rd brings Beach B Night Volume 2 to Duffy's Tavern at 9. And Katie G and the girls play the zoo bar at 6, followed at 9.30 by Eddie Meek. That's all happening this week in Lincoln. Far from the din of commercial culture and just this side of the abstract is a place I call Mesoterra. I'm Vic Valverde, your tour guide for an eclectic musical excursion on a program called Mesoterra. Saturdays, 12 noon until 1.30, right here on KZUM. here at the KZUM Studios. Ryan Evans with you on a Saturday morning on Exploring Unexplained Phenomena, a special edition in the studio with me, Jim Shorney and Colleen Newholly. And from Laughlin, Nevada, the Starworks USA UFO Symposium, Scott Colborn. And Scott, that was such an interesting segment. We have some questions here from the studio if you have time. You bet. Uh, Grant, can we take questions? Sure. Please go ahead, Ryan. Oh, um, good morning, Scott. Hi, Colleen. Yeah, I actually had a, a comment to kind of make. Um, when you're ta- when you're talking about the um, that technology from DARPA, there's actually been a um, sci-fi movie that's come out since 2013 that actually has had 
uh, a sort of inspiration from that. And if you permit me, Ryan, I'll, I'll speak the title of the movie. It's it's called um, it's called Pacific Rim, and according to mm. Guillermo del Toro, the inspiration is you know it's Japanese mecca, but at the same time, their their piloting operatives use this technology where they're capable of not only um, syncing synchronizing. Uh, their minds together but also synchronizing with with mm-hmm. their with their mix and that's and they actually in the in introduction part of the movie they actually mentioned you know the technology from DARPA and for a moment I couldn't remember exactly um what they were meant by that and then I was reminded today and I was like oh yeah that's what they were referencing was that whole thing sure. with the rats you know and I actually thought that was pretty cool because the, the sequel to that movie also came out last year. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, Colleen, just as an aside here, too, they had the uh, Paranormal Rangers that spoke yesterday. Mm-hmm. And they said that they can't call themselves the Navajo Rangers because the rest of the Navajo clan would get uh, torqued off at that. <laughs> but these are two law enforcement guys um, that are... Uh, Navajos, and you should have heard their presentation. Actually, um, I've um, I've listened to a few of their uh, videos. Um, I think it's the, the UFO Network or something like that on YouTube. They they have a few of their interviews on there, and I've listened to yeah. them. And I was like, yeah, I, I actually can relate because I know some police officers and and Pine Ridge who do take people's stories and stuff like that. My dad's one of them. But at the same time, it's kind of like, yeah, that is, you know, one thing is that you don't, you really don't want to stick a name to yourself that'll draw attention from people who are like, we don't talk about that in public, and we certainly don't talk about that with non non native people. <laughs> yeah, there, along with Grant's presentation, the the paranormal rangers was just fascinating, and again, uh, this is almost coming full circle because they talked about not just UFO sightings and close encounters, but other phenomena that seems to be interrelated or connected. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as listeners will know, I've long argued that if we just try to take that piece of the elephant that the blind man's touching and try to describe that, we only get part of the, of the whole. Yep. But if we can take that piece of the elephant and suddenly connect it to the rest of that that uh, we get a much broader understanding and a truer picture of what that elephant should look like instead of just the piece of it. Ryan, mm-hmm. did you have more questions? Because I've got something else I want to ask uh, Grant here. Yeah, please go go right ahead. Well, and Colleen and Jim, I think this is going to be of really of interest to you as well as our listeners. Uh, the idea of good aliens versus bad aliens manifestation, intention, and during Grant Cameron's keynote address yesterday, an example that really drove this home was the stories and work of Ricardo Gonzalez, who I believe is from Peru, versus what's been reported happening at the Skinwalker Ranch. Uh, Grant, can you set the stage for us by just briefly a thumbnail of uh, Ricardo Gonzalez and why that's contrasted with the Skinwalker Ranch and what's just some of the stuff that's happened there. Yeah. So 
Ricardo Gonzalez is, is there's about five of these people, and they're sort of like contactees, almost like the 1950s type contactees. Uh, there's Enrique Villanueva and other, and a lot of them are originally from from uh, South America, and they have this like a C5, but it's much more complex. They do oming, they do chanting, and they have a lot of encounters. They have the, the ability from time to time to open up what they refer to as zendras, which are like portals, and they have these descriptions of these beings. Even in fact, the, the woman that's running the conference here, Paula Harris had two incidents where she was in one of these genders, 2014-2015. And what you have with this... And you were also recently... Yeah, I, I was I was there going there last year, and I didn't want to go. It was the same thing. My friend helped me edit stuff. She's a Latino girl. And she said, oh, I want you to come to this thing. And they're meditating for world peace on the side of a mountain. I have nothing against meditation. I have nothing against world peace, but I'm not going to drive three, three days to meditate for world peace. But because she was helping me, I said, okay, I'll help you. And as I'm going, I get this message on a phone from Desta, who's my associate here. And uh, the message came across and it said, it's a message from Antarell. And Antarell knows your grant's coming to the mountain, and there's going to be what they call a program sighting. This is an extraterrestrial <clears throat> that has appeared to Paula Harris, to Ricardo Gonzalez. Uh, his, his, I'm saying masculine, his name is Antarell. Antarell. And so uh, I figure, okay, I said, get the message exactly right, because I'd gotten a message earlier about music, and I knew it turned into a book. So I said, get the message exactly what the message is. And so I posted the message, and I started the, they, they all do the, the, the fasting. So I said, okay, I'll play the game, because I knew they'd open these zenders. I thought, well, maybe there's going to be a zender open, and I'm going to actually see this alien. So I do the, the meditation, I do the, the fasting, all this stuff. And on Saturday night, they have what are called antennas. And these are people that they use who have automatic writing, who they'll use, it has to be at least two, will get the message as to when the sighting is going to take place. So two of the antennas had got the message that the sighting would take, take place at 9.33. I didn't know this until 9.33. 9.33 at night. So at 9.33 at night, Ricardo's walking around, it's dark as can be, it's freezing cold, We're all, there's 150 people, they're all oming in the middle of this meditation <laughs> circle. And all of a sudden, there's this flash above my head. And I looked up, and I went, well, this is going to sound very egotistical. It looks like it's right above my head. And I'm thinking, no, it's got to be above the group. It can't be above my head. And then there was a second flash, very bright flash. And I go, it is above my head. And I'm looking at the exact spot where this flash was, and I could not see anything. It just, the next time the flash would come. There was about eight flashes, and one I actually had my head down because it was so high above me. I couldn't look all the time. And I looked down, and these people are cheering, and this, these flashes above my head. So there was about seven or eight flashes. And, and what time was it? 9.33. And, and, and I didn't realize until later. And there's a clinical psychologist who had a PhD from Columbia who actually showed me the message from the Thursday when she it's all written in Spanish. And it's 21.33 on there. And I was just floored. I, I, you know, so I was I was really into this thing because I had actually experienced it. And they had this thing where they could... But it's all positive. That's the whole thing. Is they're doing... They're, they're mostly Roman Catholics. They come from this sort of Christian environment or whatever. And it's all positive. There's there's no weird stuff. So when Skinwalker Ranch comes up, and they're talking about Skinwalker Ranch, they're talking about, oh, there's this giant wolf, and they take a 357 Magnum at point-blank range, and they shoot this thing six times. Chunks and fly off of it. And, and there's these pieces that are coming off are rotted, and then they're, 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 this wolf is trying to grab this uh, cow, little cow, out of, and out of the, um, the, the pan, they find this cow mutilated, and they have uh, these special forces people that are there who are stopped in the middle of the road and this message comes to them, uh, get out, you are not welcome here. And these guys are just petrified. And these are guys that are special forces guys. And so you get, it's like a very negative thing. So these 
Skinwalker Ranch, they're they're painting it as you know it's 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 neutral or negative. It doesn't affect injured people, but it's doing a lot of stuff to animals. I'm going like, what's the difference? What's the difference between these two? The one is all positive. It's all angelic beings, and this one is these sort of like uh, you know weird sort of animal type things and, and a lot of sort of scary violent stuff. And so I basically asked one of them. I said. Were the people armed on the on the on the ranch? Were the and, people armed? And, and I didn't weapons. and I didn't get an answer. But one one thing George had George Knapp had pointed out. He said the people who are the most confrontational. So some people like George Knapp didn't have any experiences. John Alexander didn't have any experiences. They were there all the time. And certain people who were experiences were having experiences. And these special forces guys. And I knew that they had put forty eight people on the ranch. That Bob Bigelow had hired these people, and most of them were special forces people, military people, uh, former police people like that, and it was the attitude, it appeared to me the attitude was that when you go in there, and that's what, what George has said, the people who are the most confrontational had the worst experiences. The most aggressive people almost seem like they draw that to them. Yeah, and it's almost like the, maybe the phenomena is neutral, mm. and it's you influencing the phenomena as to what you have. And so going I played the clip by Michael Salmon. Experiment. What's that? Going yeah. back to that yeah. double Or to, experiment. to this, this experiment, that what I showed was this tape by Michael Talbot, who is an experiencer who wrote the book, The Holographic Universe. And in that, he talks about, he had this, a lot of experiences have poltergeist phenomena. And so he said, he described very clearly that when he was in a good mood, the poltergeist phenomena that was around him would hang the socks off plants. He would wake up with, with spaghetti noodles on, on, on his chest, and stuff like that. Just very playful. But when he was in a bad mood, he would wake up with needles and cut marks on his arms. And that comes to this whole thing that maybe if, if it's a consciousness world, you are manifesting what you're seeing. And it goes back even to quantum physics. Mm -hmm. John Wheeler, who won the Nobel Prize, who came up with the idea of black holes and wormholes, said it's a participatory universe. Mm -hmm. You are participating in what you're seeing. And we think it's separate. That phenomenon is separate from me. And what this is starting to show is that you have a big influence on what you have. So if you wake up in a bad mood, get ready for a bad day if you wake up in a... And this is even John Mack had said at the end of his life, he said he sort of started to indicate that the type of being that you interacted with depended on what kept the people. So if you're a very fearful person, you would manifest grace. If you were a very sort of high energy sex person, you would manifest reptilian. If you were a very spiritual type person like the Rama people, this Ricardo Gonzalez, that whole group, it's all very spiritual and, and religious and whatever. They're manifesting these angelic beings who are coming with these messages of peace for the world and all this kind of stuff. So this is the whole idea that the more you look at it, the more it looks like you play a big part in what's happening around you rather than the idea that we're just random particles in a meaningless universe bouncing around. And the only time that something happens is when something randomly affects you. It's the opposite. You are affecting what's happening around you. The, the poltergeist experience you talked about that Michael Talbot, the author of the holographic universe, was having, uh, that tape was really interesting. It made me think of Dr. William Roll from the University of Georgia. We brought Dr. Roll to Lincoln, Nebraska many years ago, and he played um, a fairly famous videotape of a young woman who had the ability to have things around her move. There was telekinetic stuff happening. Uh, pens would skitter across a table. A book would slide off a table. You'd see things lift up in the air. So on this split screen interview, he had uh, this young lady uh, 
I'm going to guess 14, uh, 15 years old, in his office, and they're talking. They're not in any sort of a yogic trance. There's no um, seance ritual. They're, they're having a conversation. The other half of the screen is the laboratory next door that has a bunch of kids' toys. And as they're talking, you clearly see stuff moving right next door because of proximity. So I really connect with what you're talking about. I thought about Dr. Roland and his work there. We may, I don't want to sound trite or shallow, but we may draw to us the exact sort of thing that we're reflecting back into the to the, to the world. Yeah. If, if we're operating from fear, then maybe it's fear we need to experience. Yeah. And whoever they are and connected to us, they may say, oh, so that's how Colborn works now, huh? He's working with fear. Okay, let's send him a dose. Bingo. Yeah, I showed another example. So this guy is very high-level, A-level Hollywood guy. His stepmother is one of the most famous people in the world. He's in, in contact with a being, and what he was told by the being was that they monitor people's minds when they encounter. And if your mind is filled with fear, they will take fear and teach you a lesson. If you're positive, they will take positive stuff and teach you a lesson. That's all they can do because that's all in your mind. They are just using what's in your mind to try to teach you a lesson. And, and that makes it fits in that same sort of thing, is that the phenomena may be neutral. So when you're on the Skinwalker Ranch, it may say, oh, you want you want fear? Okay, we can do the fear thing. Sure, if you want fear. Yeah, and yeah. that's the whole deal is that people, if you start to realize that, or even just even believe it, I think it will change your life. If you believe that what you're thinking affects, you start to monitor your thoughts and you start to back off of stupid things that you, you normally wouldn't uh, think about. Uh, Grant, have you held in your hand something that you believe is extraterrestrial. I have a piece that was or, given to me. I have a not, piece. not from this earth. I was told it, it was a piece that there's um, uh, a, NASA, NASA, a NASA official who had gone to a site. There's a story told that he takes these two academics to a site. He blindfolds and takes them to a site. I know where that site is. I was given a piece off that off that site, which I was told was was extraterrestrial. We haven't had it, it, it monitored uh, or tested yet. But um, my friend gave it to me, and then he wanted it back. He said, you can cut off a piece. So I have a little tiny piece. I've seen a lot of pieces. I've seen a lot of pieces, and I was shown photographs of two that were con that I was told were confirmed. And my source uh, is, is very good. He's an experiencer who's interacting. He's such a high-level experiencer that there's all sorts of military, CIA, even the White House. People are watching this guy. And it's the whole idea. Like, why has this guy got contact? Maybe we can get through this guy, the contacts of them. And he's, he's, I've seen two pictures, and I, though he tells the story of the orb across his driveway. This orb is coming across, and this metal is dripping off the orb. And he scrapes this metal off the, off the thing, and it was tested by two stars. And apparently it's coming back as unknown. The problem with the unknown thing is it's sort of a dead end. So there's a guy I, I interviewed just recently uh, that has the Bob White piece from 1985. And they've done tests of 13, 14 labs, Los Alamos, NID, all these major labs, and they have this anomalous in the thing as all these weird things that shouldn't appear in metal and it's the old deal it's like how many times are you going to test this thing it's weird but it's always going to be the option that well maybe it's black ops made this thing. Mm -hmm. and it's, there's never that confirmatory thing where it's off planet and then i asked him i said well if it is off planet if suddenly you realize this piece of metal is off planet what are you gonna what are you gonna do 
And there really is no answer because just, what are you going to do? I mean, it's okay, it's off planet. We're not alone. It's almost like my UFO sighting that I had is like, I never had any doubt. Oh, yeah, they're, they're here. There's no doubt about it. It's like, get the next step. Let's try to find out why they hear uh, this sort of thing. So the, the, the metal thing is sort of a dead end road. And yet the metal thing is, is it's almost like I think with the metals, because there's about 10 pieces that Lou Aldango showed. And when you look at these pieces, you're going, that's not off no spacecraft. There's no way this blobs of metal and, yeah. and stuff. And you're going, and that's when I got into the support thing that I just, mm-hmm. in the last 48 hours, I started to have the support thing where um, I realized that a lot of this stuff may be dealing with paranormal, almost going back to the mediums of the 1900s or with the, the, the rangers that were talking yesterday about these coins that are falling. 65 coins all fell heads up. And one apparently fell behind the stage yesterday. And they tell these things, and that's when you go back to mediums of the, the turn of the 20th century, and these coins are falling, and the ectoplasm and stuff, and then I go and look at angel hair that is, is in the UFO phenomena. The UFO flies by, and this, this sort of web-type stuff falls down, and you look at it, and it's like the same thing. It's this connection between all the paranormal phenomena, and it's this phenomena trying to teach us some sort of lesson about something, and it's interacting with us, and we're putting different interpretations but when you look at the paranormal stuff, the mystics and mediums and stuff like that, and you look at this, you see all these parallels, and you go, "It's the same thing. Mm-hmm. It's all, it's all, it's all um, consciousness." And consciousness, that's where you get the basis. If it's all consciousness, it's it's quite clearly um, something where um, we can learn from it, and we can realize it's all one thing, and stop separating things, stop parsing everything in our in our in our world. Boy, Grant, I hope you come back to Laughlin again next year. Where do you go from here? Um, 60 seconds here or so. Yeah, I've got, I'm going to uh, Tucson. I'm taking care of somebody's house while they go on a cruise, which is very nice because I'm from Canada where it's very cold now. <laughs> and I'm doing a lecture there, and then I'm going to be in Boulder on the Thanksgiving, that just the day before Thanksgiving, and I'll be doing a lecture there and then heading back home again. If you folks have a chance to hear Grant Cameron, I guarantee you that uh, it's an experience. And Grant, again, you made my day yesterday. And you've also, for many, many people listening this morning, you've made our day again. Thank you. So thank you. Thank you very much for your important work. Um, Presidential UFO. That's the best way to find Grant Cameron. And you'll see his work. Um, Do you have a newsletter? No. I have YouTube. I do a lot of stuff on White House UFO YouTube where I put my latest material. There's a lot of people are into watching little 15-minute YouTube videos. Yep. Go to YouTube and type in uh, Grant Cameron. It'll pop right up there. Grant, again, thank you very, very much. This was really meaningful. Thanks for your interest. Wow. Uh, Jim, Colleen, Ryan, (laughs) what do you think? Wow. I agree, Scott. What a what a fascinating, mind blowing segment. Uh, my my ears perked up when Grant mentioned the double slit experiment, and we didn't have time to go into that. But uh, I would encourage the listeners that are interested in that kind of thing to look that up. Uh, the double slit experiment, uh, first conducted in 1801, and uh, it'll blow your mind. Uh, next week's guest, uh, William Hall and Jimmy Pedanito. Phantom messages, chilling phone calls, letters, emails, and texts from unknown realms. I'm Scott Colborn. Uh, Grant Cameron has been our special guest today. Thanks so much to Grant for coming up here. You guys and gals out there all over the world, we are celebrating 34 years of exploring unexplained phenomena. 
thank you so much for your support and your interest. Stay tuned for Vic now and Mesoterra. And Ryan, thanks for operating the board back there. Jim, Colleen, Ryan, have a great rest of the weekend. You too, and You as well, Scott. Thank yep. you.